Hello and welcome to the MISAN podcast, the podcast in which we talk to MISAN members and their associates about their current and ongoing research into medieval Central Europe. I'm Cohen Culver, and today it is my pleasure to meet and talk to Gregor Boykov about his research into Islamic pious foundations in Bulgaria in the Ottoman period. Grigor gained his PhD in Ottoman history in 2013 from Bilkent University in Ankara. He has taught at the University of Sofia, Central European University, and was a researcher at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. He is now an assistant professor at the University of Vienna in the Institute for East European History. His research merges well-established approaches in history writing with the evolving tools and methods in digital humanities, such as spatial and network analysis. His publications focus on diverse, profoundly interwoven themes like architectural patronage in the Ottoman Balkans, prosopography of the early Islamic elites in southeastern Europe, history of the urban morphology in the Balkans under the Ottoman rule, historical population geography of the East Balkans, monastic and non-Sunni Islamic networks vis-à-vis the Sunnitization and centralising empire-building processes of the Ottoman state, which is a very interesting combination. Grigor is the author, editor and collaborator of a wide range of books and articles, notably the Gazetteer of the Ottoman Empire, and his most recent monograph on Ottoman Plovdiv, Space, Architecture and Population, 14th to 17th century, which is expected to be published this year with the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Grigor, welcome to the Mesem podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And mine. Starting with possibly a rather basic question, on pious endowments... Within a Christian world, a pious endowment would probably imply funding for a building of a chapel, a church, or a monastery. Within the Islamic world, what is meant by a pious endowment? Yeah, thank you for the question. I I think it's a good opening uh, to our discussion. I would say it's very similar to uh, to the Christian world with there are some differences, of course. A vakf. Uh, Wakf in Arabic or Vakf in Turkish is basically any sort of charitable endowment that, that could be meant to support a important public building, but also could be meant to render various social services designed to provide social welfare. So, for instance, a Wakf could maintain a bridge or the water supply system of a city. So, very often... The aqueducts was provided by one of these charitable foundations. So the similarities would be that this is, a, this is an endowment designed and meant to, to support a institution, maybe religious or educational, but also the social welfare of a, of a given place. Mo- most of the cases we speak about urban places. Okay, that makes a lot more sense because I'd been looking at what the Wakof were doing and I was really getting a little confused at times. From your paper, it is clear that there's been a lot of research on the Wakof and the endowments in general. So 
could you explain what is new in your research and how was your research done, your sources, your challenges? And why did you focus exclusively on Bulgaria? Yeah, these are excellent sets of questions. And uh, now let's let's start with the first one. What has been done in, in modern scholarship? Since the early age of modern scholarship, many renowned scholars have acknowledged the importance of the Islamic pious endowments for Muslim societies in general, and especially in the Ottoman case, since the very early stage, scholars have pointed to the utmost importance of the vakufs in setting the Ottoman society in Anatolia and in the Balkans. However, the research generally did not progress much from this point on, and our knowledge would be summed up as we know that the vacs are important. So I asked myself how important they are. Can we quantify, for instance, the importance? I started asking myself several simple questions. If we know that the Islamic endowments, the vacuves, were major landowners, what was the portion of the land that they possessed? So that would be my first research question in mind. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know, uh, for instance, in the Ottoman Empire, what, what portion of the villages belonged to pious foundations. This is something that struck me as important to know and really worth researching. And then if once we establish how many villages they had, we would be also willing to, to look into what was the territory that is endowments controlled out of the entire territory of the empire, for instance. And it, it is a valid question, and we have no answer whatsoever to that, except speculations. People have supposed, uh, speculated in the past that it's about one third. And how do we know that? Uh, there is no basically any scholarly explanation, it's sheer intuition. So the only way that we know that is go to the primary sources and try to fetch the data that's necessary and answer the very basic question. And the second question that immediately comes in mind is if we know how many villages, what was the territory held by the VACs, one would wonder who are the agents establishing those VACs. It seems to me important to know whether these were satanic establishments, whether these were established by other prominent local or provincial elites, what role, for instance, the royal women played in that process, what is the share? And the third question that arises out of that is, well, if we can establish that, it might be also good to know that what portion of the revenues of the empire belong to those pious endowments, how much money they collected, and what portion it constituted from the total revenues that could be collected from the given province. And finally, I would ask myself what portion of the population actually resided in those vacf lands. Would it make a difference if a villager resides within a different land regime? And in order to answer these questions, in Ottoman studies, one needs to go and fetch the primary sources. That, in my case, meant a multitude of records of those pious foundations, their population and their revenues. And that was brought into a data set that I was able to geo-reference and put onto the map and then start playing around with it. 
in simple terms, it's uh, it is a process that probably in the past was very difficult to do because of the accessibility of the sources. But today, those sources are digitized. That's to say, they're still in their primary shape, written in Ottoman Turkish. But one can virtually go to the archive and purchase thousands of pages and extract the data peacefully at home. And it takes time, but at the very end, it's doable. And the article proves that it is doable uh, within a reasonable amount of time. And your final question about the territorial scope of the study. Yes, why Bulgaria? It's a very good question. And I uh, unfortunately had to follow this uh, territorial scope. Uh, I say unfortunately because it's very obvious that the modern borders of Bulgaria are inadequate to the 15th or 16th century reality. There were no such borders and they're meaningless in this respect. So I chose to go for Bulgaria because of the availability of digital spatial data that I could have downloaded from Bulgarian cadaster and use this cadaster data to merge with the data extracted from the Ottoman sources. Uh, so my limitation to Bulgaria is rather practical because that, that was the digital data that I could put my hands on. And cadastral data... That's the data of land holdings, isn't it? Yes, that's the data of land holding of a particular village. So if if you imagine a typical record in an Ottoman source would contain a village name and its administrative belongings, then would contain some information about the VAKF owner, who established the VAKF, and very often you get a short history of the, the process of establishing the VAKF. And then there is a detailed record of the taxpayers. And it finally ends up with a summary of predicted revenues. It's not an accurate picture of what has been collected every year, but it's rather a system of bargaining in establishing what is what would be the average production. So in, in this sense, this data is not absolutely accurate but could give us some sort of, a, of an idea about the agricultural mix, for instance, in the village. So we could easily find out that this is a wine-growing region or uh, if there are any commercial crops like rice, it becomes visible from these records. So this data is extracted from the Ottoman sources and then attributed to a spatial point. Imagine the village as a point in space. So you identify the village and you assign the data to that point. And then since point is not really self-explanatory as, as to the amount of land the village would have. So I would take modern polygon of a village lens that is provided by the cadaster and spatially merge this Ottoman data to this polygon. And we would know that the village X in year X with the territory of so many square kilometers would have had such population and the revenues from that village would be so much. So that's why this modern cadastral data is superbly important because that's the only way that I can think of in converting the point data into, into territory. And if we have a really clearly defined boundaries of, of a modern village, uh, why not using that? And most of the cases, historians revolt here because they say, 
how do we know that in the 15th century, the boundaries of the village were the same? Well, frankly speaking, there is no way that we know that. But unless there is an extreme event, the village boundaries tend not to change. And if probably 95% of the, of the cases, are, I would think, modern village lands are usable. And since there is no Ottoman cadastre, has never been produced. So we don't expect that we find the 16th century village boundaries precisely drawn by Ottoman administrators. And if we would like to do such spatial research, we have to find a way. My solution is to use modern polygons, uh, which has, of course, some drawbacks, but I mostly see uh, the positive sides of it and let alone it's readily available, downloadable from the cadaster. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, I, I can see all that. I hadn't realised that there was so little research into the Ottoman period. It sounds very challenging, but also incredibly exciting to be doing something so new, so different, that no one else has ever been there before. That must be really exciting. In a way it is. In a way, uh, I find it really exciting because basically whatever you try in Ottoman studies, one ends up in an unknown territory and opens new paths. And that's the nice part of it. The frustrating part of it is sometimes you don't want to open new paths. You just want to know the answer of a simple question. And for other disciplines, one can easily fetch this answer, opening a basic monograph in socioeconomic history. In Ottoman case, unfortunately, the level of our knowledge still did not reach, in my opinion, a really satisfactory level. We still don't know basic, basic stuff about the Ottoman rule of the Balkans in Anatolia. If you start with population, we have very vague, if any, idea about population dynamics. We have very vague, if any, idea about economic dynamics. These are fundamental issues. Yes, and I remember, I, I was reading your paper yesterday, you were talking about the road layouts, and you can't tell where the roads were. I, I'm English. We know every Roman road. They are known. You can see them on maps. So it seems so different, so exciting to have all this great big unknowns. Indeed. As I said, it has the bad and the good sides. You know, speaking of roads, uh, the road infrastructure that I used in my paper was generously provided by my friend Erdem Kabadeh, who had a project and map mined those roads. And he digitized several maps to, to get the road model and generously offered me to use this data. But he invested in that, I think, 1,500 working hours. And this is what we're talking about. We, you know, we, you have villages in space. You would like to check their connectivity. Thank <laughs> God, them gave me the data. <laughs> Amazing. Thinking about the Pious Foundations, who made these pious foundations. You've given some hints already. And when, over what period of time were they made? And was there any specific approach, any um, 
any approach to the time and place of a pious foundation? Let's start with the with the patrons. Who made those? And probably probably didn't become clear how this functions. We should imagine a situation that a sultan or somebody who has enough financial might builds something, builds building. In most cases, that's a religious building, it's a mosque. But could be any other establishment or could be a complex of some sort. And he would like to, or she would like to, in most cases he, but there are many, very many prominent she's in, in my story. Uh, he would like to provide enough revenues for the sustainable development of this place over time. And one would endow revenues of some sort. So these revenues could be coming from taxation of villages and tithes on production and other stuff that villagers would pay, but could be coming from other sources as well. And finally, one can endow a lump sum of money lent under interest, and this generates the, the necessary cash for the maintenance of the, of the establishment. But in our case, what I was more interested is to walk into those provincial possessions, those revenues from villages that were endowed to a given institution. Of course, it is likely that the greatest endowers are the Ottoman sultans. After all, the land were in their possession but they could transform it into a pious endowment as they pleased. So if you look at the data on Bulgaria, and I, I believe this data is somewhat representative. It's a good sample. It's one fifth of the Balkans, probably not exactly the same because geographies do matter, but the conclusions reached about Bulgaria are somewhat applicable for most of the Balkans. So the greatest endowers are the sultans and 40% of the villages in Bulgaria that were endowed to pious foundations of some sort were established by the Ottoman sultans. And those who visited Istanbul would probably recall the great complex of Suleimani. So this complex has a number of villages, several dozens of villages bringing revenues to, to this complex. So that, that would be one prominent group and this is logical to expect. Okay, what is also expected is that high-ranking Ottoman officials like the viziers and the grand viziers or provincial administrators were also involved in, in this business because they would patronize buildings all around the empire and they need to, to provide for their maintenance. So they also occupy a significant share, like 16%, if I'm not mistaken, go to that. And another very prominent uh, a group are the, the princesses from the Ottoman royal household who owed like 14% of the villages in Bulgaria and established a number of prominent buildings around the empire, mostly in Istanbul, but in other places too. And, and the current scholarship basically focused on their architectural patronage and the buildings themselves, but never Anybody, to the best of my knowledge, worked into the social and economic foundations of these buildings, bringing those revenues uh, for their support. And I think this it's kind of important because scholars have argued that some of those buildings uh, built by Ottoman royal female 
could have also a clear political message. But I think walking into into the economic basis of this political message could give us extra insights. But there's one group that is particularly interesting to me, and unfortunately, very little studied. There's a growing awareness about the importance of this group, but I would say it still remains understudied. These are the provincial elites or provincial nobility, the so-called Akanje Uchbeis, so the frontier commanders in the, in the Ottoman Empire. These are several mini dynasties who run parallel to the Ottoman and who happen to have ruled over substantial parts of the Balkans over time ever since the arrival of the Ottomans to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, some of them, in the case of Bulgaria, some of them made it to the Bulgarian parliament and were among those people who voted for the first post-Ottoman Bulgarian constitution. So it's a long-lasting history of these mini-provincial dynasties that were terribly important. And if one maps out their possessions, one would clearly see a territorial enclaves of consolidated plots of land, 20, 30, 50 villages together, by those prominent frontier wards. After all, 20% of the, of the villages were in their hands, so it's not a negligible part. And the story of these people is yet to be told. And we know that they had their palaces, they had their uh, households, and really imitated in a smaller scale the the Ottoman royal system. And now all this is gone. But if one gets to the spot, get on the car and drive to the village, see what's in there. I found amazing stuff. You know, the ruins of hammams and, and bats, the tombstones of these people are still around. And that's that's a story that needs to be told and probably will be in in the future. If you ever get a chance to excavate those bathhouses, let me know because you'll have a volunteer to come and help you. Wonderful. Please. Um, I've been thinking, within the Christian world, people gave to pious foundations. Uh, they built a church, they built a chapel, whatever, as a way to access heaven and the afterlife. Was it the same within the Islamic world or... Were there different rationales? Yeah, thank you. This is a super interesting question. I would say it's probably a bit of two, of the two. Certainly, there must have been a religious incentive to build those buildings and provide them with enough revenues for their maintenance. Now, if we focus on the, those frontier wars that we were talking about, one would see that they are basically almost the sole patterns in of public architecture in their domains. That said, does not also deprive them from a desire to preserve their wealth. And VACF was one of the ways how they can guarantee the preservation of their, of their wealth. Should have probably explained a bit how one could come into possession of land since a newly conquered territory belongs to the Sultan himself. So the Sultan has the right to, to grant specific land to individuals that he would select. And those people have acquired these lands with the Sultan diploma, guaranteeing their 
full proprietorship, but this could be renounced. And under given circumstances, wealth and landed properties have been confiscated by the Ottoman Sultan when you follow a favor, when things go wrong for you. And in order to preserve that wealth for generations, uh, one of the strategies that people followed is to consolidate and endow it to a charitable institution of some sort. And you appoint yourself and then your relatives, and then you list the lineage of people who are all related to your family who will be governing this foundation. Except for the salaries that were set aside, basically these people would continue to govern their estates and although they're named a charitable foundation. A foundation is, is established with an endowment deed of some sort. The way it is handled is stipulated there. Normally it would list all the beneficiaries and that would be of course the buildings and other structures and the personnel serving them. So the salaries and the money uh, for the maintenance of the buildings would be reserved there. But then you list a number of other individuals, you know, who run the business, administrator, and there'll be a supervisor of some sort and other people who run the, uh, the foundation. And at the very end, there is a surplus. And whatever is left over should be administered by the administrator the way he's pleased. So I would say there are two incentives. Definitely there is an incentive to provide for the community, but also there is an incentive for wealth preservation. Aha, uh -huh. got it. Understood. Your paper, which I found super interesting, is titled Conquered by Sword, Subdued by Charity. In your opinion, to what extent was the original population of the conquered land subdued? Yeah, uh, first part of the question, there's little doubt that this territory was conquered by sword, one way or another. Uh, some parts of Bulgaria offered more severe resistance to the Ottomans, others just surrendered and people tried to work for the survival strategies. Now, what happens after is that the Ottomans basically found a territory that was unequally populated. If you look at the map of modern Bulgaria, one can find out that actually the western parts of Bulgaria were way more densely populated than the eastern parts. To some extent, this is due to a long period of series of military conflicts that predate the Ottoman arrival to the Balkans, but also to the early Ottoman incursions in the region. So now, if you go fast forward, probably... 150 years since the conquest of Bulgaria. So we move to the end of um, to the end of 16th century. You see about a thousand villages in Bulgaria that belong to pious foundations, and you'd see that these villages are very unequally distributed. They're mostly in the eastern part, in the areas where there were very visibly fewer people residing. It has been already proposed by the great Turkish historian Ömer Lütfi Barkan that those vaqfs were meant and used by the Ottoman sultans as a way of revitalizing deprived areas. I would agree with, with that notion. I would probably disagree with 
with the role he appoints to uh, he assigns to the sultan i wouldn't imagine the sultan would have such such tight control over every process in the empire but i would agree very much with barkan given what we can observe on the ground that those vibes played a role for revitalizing the areas that were badly depopulated and if you move fast forward another 100 150 years ago you come to the mid 17th century or so one can see that the population density of bulgaria homogenized so those very densely populated areas in the west slowly gave way to the eastern parts and the population relocated to the eastern parts because there was plenty of arable land that were frankly speaking the better places to live better land and widely available in this way my idea is that these charitable institutions contributed for the consolidation of the ottoman grip of power on on power and yet today we would assume that people would live closer to the black sea coast because it's warmer pretty agricultural land and so on it just hadn't occurred to me that these lands were partially empty um, almost empty you know the, the population density of late 15th century even early 16th century eastern bulgaria uh, they come close to siberia and siberia is empty right and, and if you look at the west is is germany yeah uh, gregor you created maps showing the locations of the villages that were part of the endowments and as you've already mentioned it was a very uneven distribution with most in the central although within the central part of the country the main river valleys had the endowments and the mountains did as well which struck me as rather odd so can you explain more about the spatial analysis thank you uh, it's a very good question now once again in my mind it shows us why it is important that we spatially reference the data that we collect from the ottoman sources because that's one of my main criticism to my predecessors colleagues who wrote on the vacf issues is that although they would provide some data let alone the data is dispersed but they would never even attempt to place this data within the spatial realm so that we make a better sense of what exactly is happening in the geographies of the country in the balkans now what i have discovered when i planted all the data on the map is that i already mentioned the distribution of the vac villages is not as one would expect rather equal on the contrary so if you draw a line that separates the country south north and there is a mountain range that separates bulgaria into two parts and one would find out that about 33% of the villages are in the northern part and 67% of the villages fall in the in the southern part so this is a, it's a very obvious preference uh, towards establishing villages in the southern part of the country but even more intriguingly if you if you separate the the country in the traditional eastern central and western zones so going from east to west about 30% of the villages were in the eastern part and the central part takes a share of 61% and in the western part that's very densely populated there barely 8% of vac villages 
that is not a sheer coincidence and calls for an explanation. Furthermore, if one looks at these 8% back villages in the western part of the country, would find out that they all belong to the Mihalovo family. So one particular family of March Awards. Now, returning to north-south separation, I think it's easily explainable why most of the villages are located in the south by working in the population densities. These were empty territories. And they those vaks basically colonized. So easy to explain. And... If one maps the dervish convents of those itinerant dervishes that were closely associated with the Turkoman population that came to the Balkans and were closely associated again with those frontier words, one would see also a very, very good overlap. All of the known 15th and 16th century convents of those dervishes would be surrounded by Vak villages. So there is a clear correlation here. And why the villages concentrated in the central part, like 61% of the villages concentrated in the heart of Bulgaria? Revenues could help here. These are the richest parts, that the parts that produced most revenues. So obviously there's a tendency of the VAC owners to place their possessions within the richest parts of the country. And if you look at the production, you mentioned the mountains, those villages would provide revenues for the maintenance of the complexes, but they would also provide agricultural production and production from animal husbandry. All of the complexes that those villages supported would have emirates, like soup kitchens, and they would need rice, they would need wheat, but they would also need meat. So for this reason, it's not, it doesn't come as a big surprise that most of the villages, about 70% of the villages owned by VAGs, are located on primary or secondary roads. So that means very easy way of transportation of the production to the, to the capital or wherever the institutions were. And the meat comes from the Rodops. Those villages in the mountain were pretty much occupied by animal husbandry. Certainly they don't lay on primary or secondary roads, but the commodities they produce can walk. And they walked their herds down to the centers where they were needed. Um, so I think that's partial explanation about a very complex phenomena. And I would say probably, certainly, more detailed studies are due on individual cases. But the overall picture is very clear. Yeah, I can see why you would want to do more studies on individual cases. I'm also now becoming very aware that the Islamic pious foundations in many ways are very, very different from the Christian ones. Um, the Christian ones would build a chapel and then just leave it, where the Islamic ones seem to be much more focused on the ongoing, the maintenance, the ongoing feeding, the soup kitchen, the waters... So they were looking for revenue rather than capital. And providing public welfare. Yeah. Uh, and you provide public welfare through revenue. Uh, Grigor, you've said quite clearly this is preliminary work. It's all very new, very exciting. There's been a lot of work done on the Ottoman Empire, but nothing in the way of the pious foundations and the revenue they generated. So 
what else is to be done? Oh, thank you. This is this is an excellent question. Um, I think there's a what to be done. It's more undone than has been done. Keeping the endowments in mind, there is a there is a recent development actually which could shed a lot of light to what we know so far. There's a colleague in Birmingham, uh, Chris Markevich, who got an ERC grant to study the the VAX in the Ottoman Empire. So we have big expectations that in the next five years, what will change? Our understanding will enrich dramatically by bringing fresh data to light and making better sense of this institution in an Ottoman context. But at the very end, we need to bring the data out of the archives and make it usable and reusable for researchers to interpret. And in Ottoman studies, unfortunately, we haven't done this so far. And as a friend says, Ottoman studies is a field that is opinion-rich but data-poor field. (laughs) And on that inspiring note and thought of future work on WAFTS and many other areas, we must leave it there. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Grigor, thank you for sharing your expertise and spatial analysis of the pious foundations of the Islamic world of the Ottomans and for their implications on the wider social economic development of the Ottoman lands of Southeast Europe. Today I've been talking to Grigor Boykov about the role of the Islamic pious foundations in the lands conquered by the Ottomans in the Balkans. My thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you found it as interesting inspiring and enjoyable as I did. Please do look out for the next MISAM podcast in which MISAM members and associates talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you think other MISAM members would find it interesting, do please contact me through the MISAM board or MISAM administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISAM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. <laughs>